thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who can dribble a basketball, Mike <laughs> Vandebogart. Wow, setting the bar oh, low. I, meant, I screwed it up. I meant to say bowling ball. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> wow, dribble a basketball. Really going, setting the low bar now. I'm not redoing it. We're just going <laughs> to no. go out there, and it's going to be the ridiculous one that made sense, actually. Um, well, thank you, Joe, and <laughs> thank you once again uh, to everyone who's tuning in. Uh, just a couple announcements. First, we'd like to thank all of our new Patreon supporters this month. So we've got Brooke Noland, uh, Joanna Bennett, Melissa Deutsch, who I believe was the uh, person who recommended last uh, week's episode. Oh, we did her episode, so then she joined? Yeah. Perfect. Um, Evan, uh, Karen, Linda Eldridge, um, Marielle Watson, Amy Green, uh, Rilza, Jay, and Becca Combs, or Coombs. So thank you so much. Uh, for supporting the show. Um, we had a record month for Patreon supporters this month. So Ooh, Thank you all very much. Thank you all very much. And we have uh, another thank you to everyone who listens. Uh, Athletic Greens has decided to pick us up through September. Yep. So, all those all those listens. We had a record month for uh, downloads. I don't yeah. know what the exact numbers are, but because of that, because of your help and spreading the word, uh, we're getting some legit sponsors. Not that the other ones weren't, but no. <laughs> they, they, they kept us on for the full summer ahead of time. Normally yeah. it was episode to episode. So thank you all. It's all because of you guys. And the ad the ad is in the middle of the episode. So make sure to listen to it and buy lots of Athletic Greens <laughs> products. Um, also, uh, we had a little contest on our Patreon page for new swag. And I we picked some winners. And uh, Two weeks ago, I got COVID, so I've been kind of out of commission, uh, but I will get that stuff mailed out to the winners, uh, hopefully in the next week. Yeah, you had COVID while we recorded the last episode. Yeah. I didn't get it, though, because no. I already had it, so I, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't feel sick when we were recording. Yeah, you, you were fine. Yeah, it was the next day. It really started to hit me. Um, and finally, um, if you want to call the show and uh, you know give us some episode suggestions, you can call 208-391-6913. Um, and finally, this is a fun episode. It's kind of off. It's not kind of one of our traditional episodes. Um, so hope you enjoy it. It's more of a storytelling episode with us um, interjecting our amazing wit yeah, into and if, it. If you have comments or concerns or <laughs> you just want to leave a ma- nice note, 208 391 All right. All right, everybody. Let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. November 24th, 1971, 
a man carrying a black attache case hijacks a Northwest Orient Airlines flight out of Portland International Airport, demanding a ransom payment. What happens next stuns the flight crew and has puzzled law enforcement for the last 42 years. Join us this week as we discuss the legend of D.B. Cooper. So, Mike, we've talked about the story of D.B. Cooper before, just between ourselves, talking yeah. about hiking, camping. Uh, it was actually, and I just watched this movie recently because I forgot about it, the movie Without a Paddle. Oh, you Remember yeah. that movie? Yeah. The whole premise of that movie is they're going to go find D.B. Cooper's lost treasure. Um, so it's <laughs> it's it's been in and out of uh, popular history for a little bit. And today we're going to just, uh, as Mike said before, go off our normal... Uh, methods and and go along with this story and you know what i knew who db cooper was but i did not know the level of detail we're going to kind of go into with what happened that day and you know all of the events after um you know his hijacking and uh it's a very puzzling case and um you know it was only recently closed by the fbi a couple years ago so it's it's, it was an active FBI investigation for decades. I think that's what's like, what it really excited me about this case is it's just a fun one. Every yeah. now and then we kind of shake it up a little bit. So um, we won't spend too much time on the appearance because a lot of this is the story of what happened. Got all the data collected in one spot. We got uh, – <clears throat> I, I pulled data, though, too, from the FBI case file. So we're going to have the entire – they released the entire case file to um, the public – a couple years ago. So the FBI had a lot of great information on him and there were actually, there was a lot of other sources that we pulled information from. So, um, you know, it, it is essentially a story though. Yep. So, all right. So for those watching, I have the, I'll have pictures pulled up, but we'll describe it as we go. So his appearance, if you're watching, this is the FBI, uh, bulletin that they put out of the sketch that they have of him. Cause they, Never found this person. I'm, I'm not giving too much away by saying that, but we'll get there. Uh, he's a white male, mid-40s, height 5'10 to 6 foot, weighed 170 to 180 pounds. Uh, so he's an average to well-built man. His complexion was olive, uh, Latin appearance, and medium smooth skin. His hair was dark brown or black. Uh, normal style for that time. Uh, it was parted on the left, combed back, uh, sideburns, low ear level, possibly brown eyes, uh, and what does it say? Oh, he had sunglasses on during the flight. Uh, and in, as Mike said, he was dressed in a suit and he had an attache case. So an attache case is like those black cases that you always see in shady X-Files where they like open it up <laughs> and there's money. It's full of money. Yeah. Uh, that's what it is. Just a black suitcase. It's a briefcase. Yeah. Briefcase from like the eighties. It sounds cooler to say attache case. It does. It does so much cooler. <laughs> so it was a guy wearing sunglasses, kind of average, you know, it looks a little like Lee Harvey Oswald actually a little bit, yeah. a little bit. Um, but he was wearing a suit blacks, like a men in black type guy with a suitcase and yeah that that's him 
So let's go into the timeline now. And what we're going to go through is kind of what happened starting on November 24th, 1971. I said 80s and 70s. These events are really quite spectacular. Can you imagine something like this happening in 2022? I can't. I can't. Well, it's especially because he, we'll get into theories, but essentially it's the only unsolved uh, hijacking. Air hijacking. Air hijacking in history. So on the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, a nondescript man carrying a black attache case calling himself Dan Cooper approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport in Oregon. He used cash to buy a one-way ticket on flight 305, which is a 30-minute trip north to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Cooper boarded the aircraft, which was a Boeing 727, and took seat 18C or 18E, and uh, some people thought maybe 15D by other accounts. And we're going to get real descript because we're going off of the files and the witness statements. Mm-hmm. And he ordered a drink, which was a bourbon and soda. Cooper was described as a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt. Well, I said he was like a man in black. Yeah. Maybe maybe that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about theories. Okay. <laughs> we, that'll be our off the deep end. Right. Maybe. Uh now at 2.50 p.m., flight 305 was a pl- approximately one-third full and departed Portland on schedule at 2.50 Pacific Standard Time. A short time after, around 3 p.m., he handed the stewardess a note indicating that he had a bomb in his briefcase and wanted her to sit with him. The note was printed in neat all-capital le- all capital letters with a felt-tip pen. Its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed it. Smart move. Yeah. You can't do a, a handwriting analysis. Yeah. The stunned stewardess did as she was told. Opening the cheap attache case, Cooper showed her a glimpse of a mass of wires and red-colored sticks and demanded that she write down what he told her. After closing the briefcase, he, he stated his demands, $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. The flight attendant conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. The captain, William A. Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which informed local and federal authorities. The 35 other passengers were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrup, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain at one point, he remarked, looks like Tacoma down there, as the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive at that time from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Schaffner described Cooper as calm, polite, and well-spoken, not consistent with stereotypes, the enraged, hardened criminals, or take-me-to-Cuba political dis- dissidents uh, proper, uh, popularly associated with air piracy at the time. He wasn't nervous, Mucklow told investigators. So just to jump in, um, while Joe was talking, I looked up uh, $200,000 in today's money. 
because you know you could think like why 200 grand that's that's a big risk for 200 grand yeah so in today's money due to inflation that would be 1.4 million so it still seems low for air hijacking but okay yeah but uh you know so yeah what were houses back then like 40 grand <laughs> yeah. so like, so maybe that wasn't a big deal so uh just to put some perspective i mean it was 40 40 plus years ago so okay uh, he seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. As Schaffner grasped the enormity of what was happening, Cooper reassured her. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and attempted to give Mucklow the change, and requested meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. Mucklow asked Cooper if he had a grudge with Northwest Orient. Cooper replied, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle area banks, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with the serial numbers beginning with the letter L indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and made a microfilm photograph of each of them. Cooper rejected the military-issue parachute offered by McCord Air Force Base personnel, instead demanding four civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school. Cooper was informed that his demands had been met. The aircraft landed in Seattle-Tacoma Airport in heavy rain around an hour after sunset. Cooper instructed Scott to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close all window shades and cabin to deter police snipers. Now, do you know what an apron is, a part of the runway? Um, is that like the big square? Yeah, it's... I. You know what? I don't want to misspeak um, because someone will message us and... Uh, Tell us we're wrong. Look but, that up while I keep going and then okay. chime back in. So Northwest Orient Seattle operations manager Al Lee approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer and delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Mucklow via the aft stairs. That's so, the stairs in the back of the aircraft. Uh, just to jump in again. Yep. Uh, the airport ap- apron is just the area where the aircraft is parked, unloaded, or loaded, refueled, boarded. Or maintained. So, oh, so that's like where the jetway, like when you walk down that that whole yeah, pretty much not on the runway area. Correct. Okay. So once the delivery was completed, so we had the knapsack of cash, the parachutes. Cooper allowed all passengers, Schaffner and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. So he had very specific demands. Uh, it does make it seem like he knew what he was doing. He didn't want military parachutes. He, because he wanted the manual ripcord from uh, civilian parachutes. Um, he wanted all the, the shades closed so a sniper couldn't get him. Um, it definitely it's gets, like he did his research. He did his research or he c- comes from a military background or um, law enforcement. Okay. So all just right. interesting. All right. <laughs> uh, the refueling process was delayed. A second and later third truck was brought into complete refueling. An FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which was denied. Cooper grew impatient, saying this shouldn't take so long, and sent a note to crew saying, let's get the show on the road. Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew. A southeast course towards Mexico City at a minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. Approximately 100 knots which is 185 kilometers per hour or 115 miles per hour. That's pretty slow for an airliner. That's very slow. (laughs) At a maximum 10,000-foot altitude, 
So we set the ceiling at only 10,000 feet, which normally they cruise at 25 to 30,000 feet, correct? Even higher. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming he set the altitude at that maximum so that he could breathe. Yeah, on a jump. Yeah. Yeah. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff landing position. The wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin remain unpressurized. Okay, so he does know his stuff. Yeah, and that's interesting. Um, I believe he probably... It would be really it. It would be tough to open. I, I want to. I don't know this for sure, but I know for a fact that a, a airliner in mid-flight, especially if it's pressurized, it's next to impossible to open the exterior doors while it's flying. Well, and if you can, from what I've seen in the movies, everything gets sucked out. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because it's pressurized yeah. and it's lower pressure on the outside of the plane. So my guess is the reason why he wanted it to fly uh, so slow. Uh, with the the flaps down at 15 degrees and the landing gear down is so that he could actually get the door open. Okay. So if the plane's flying at five 600 miles an hour and it's pressurized, you're probably not going to get that cabin door open. Okay. So. All right. Uh, First Officer William J. Ratzik informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers under the specified flight configuration which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno-Tahoe International Airport as the refueling stop. Cooper further directed that the aircraft take off with the rear exit door open and its air stair extended. Oh, so there you go. He, they took off with the door open. I, I wonder if, like, I didn't know if that you could do that with, like, aerodynamics and... I guess you can. Yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to take off with the door open. You you wouldn't be comfortable for the people in the cabin. Yeah. Uh, Northwest Home Office objected on grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the the aft staircase deployed. Cooper eventually decided he would lower it once they were airborne. Okay, there you go. (laughs) Answer my question right after. And asked Mucklow to show him how to operate the stairs. So now this is around 7.40 p.m. on the 24th. At approximately 7.40, the Boeing 727 took off with only Cooper, Mucklow, Captain Scott, First Officer Ratzik, and the flight engineer, Harold E. Anderson, on board. Two F-106 fighter aircraft from McCord Air Force Base followed behind the airliner, one above it, one below, out of, out of Cooper's view. A Lockheed T-33 trainer, diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission, also shadowed the 727 before running low on fuel and turning back near Oregon-California state line. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the curtain closed. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. The pilots asked on the cabin intercom if Cooper needed assistance. Cooper picked up the cabin phone and replied, no. That was the last message heard from Cooper. The crew then noticed a subjective change in air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, large enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. At some point between 10 and 11.30 p.m., the 727 landed with the aft air stair still deployed at Reno-Tahoe International Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police were on hand, although they did not approach the plane in case the bomb was still alive. Captain Scott confirmed Cooper was no longer aboard, and the FBI bomb squad reported the cabin was clean 
and after after a thirty minute sweep. So he jumped before they landed at Tahoe. Yeah, so they're I think what they're getting at is when they felt the tail section of the plane suddenly jump upwards, that yeah. would indicate like his weight had left the aircraft. He had hit the tail. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So FBI agents recovered sixty six unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. The agents also found Cooper's black clip on tie, his tie clip in two of four parachutes one of which had been opened and two shroud lines cut from the canopy. Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno. A series of composite sketches were developed. That's the uh, picture for those watching that we saw in the beginning. Yeah. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. One of the first was an Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper, contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name, or the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet an imminent deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker. A wire service reporter uh, republished the error, followed by other media sources. D.B. Cooper then became widely remembered pseudonym. So that isn't even the name. So when you think of D.B. Cooper... He never used that ever. No, it was Dan Cooper. Yeah, he said Dan Cooper, yeah. but everyone called him DB Cooper, and then it just took off. <laughs> Fake news. Fake news. A, a precise search area was difficult to define, as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path, which varied by location and altitude, changed Cooper's projected landing points considerably. An important variable was length of time Cooper remained in the free tail free fall before pulling his ripcord. Neither the Air Force F-106 pilot saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on radar, nor did they see parachutes open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting below, an airborne black-clad human figure could easily have gone undetected. The T-33 pilot never made visual contact with the 727. In an experimental recreation with the same aircraft using the hijacking in the same flight configuration, FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of an open air stair and were able to reproduce, reproduce an upward motion of the tail section and brief change in cabin pressure described by the flight crew at, flight, flight crew at 8.13 p.m. So basically, that confirms that he did jump from the plane. Yeah, so they, they had a f- good felt- idea of when they felt that Shut yeah. upward of the tail section. That's when he actually exited. Yeah. Initial explore, exploita- explorations eh, placed Cooper's extrapolations. Land- extrapolations placed <laughs> Cooper's landing zone within an area on the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, an artificial lake formed by a dam on the Lewis River. Search efforts focused on Clark and Coates counties, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north, respectively of the Lewis River in southwest Washington. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. Door-to-door searches of local farmhouses were also carried out. Other search parties ran both patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yale Lake. The reservoir immediately to its east, and no trace of Cooper nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him was found. You would think that... If he had perished in the fall, and I won't go into a lot of theories, but you would think the parachute would be visible 
it would get stuck on trees. Yeah, because it's power lines. Because it's big. It's big. It'd be flapping in the wind. Um, so maybe. Well, I won't. Uh, I won't get into theories. Yeah, we'll go into theories later. <laughs> The FBI also coordinated an aerial search using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard along the entire flight path, known as Victor 23 in U.S. aviation terminology, but Vector 23 in most Cooper literature, from Seattle to Reno. Although numerous broken tree tops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. So now we're in early 1972. Shortly after the spring fall in 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 United States Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with United States Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers, conducted another thorough ground search of the Clark and Coetz counties for 18 days in March, and then an added 18 days in April. So they spent a ton of time and resources Searching this flight path area. I think it peeved them that they had a hijacking that they couldn't solve. Yeah, and the fact that nothing was found is pretty... Well, not nothing, but all of his gear, basically. Yeah, stuff found. not related to the case at all. Yeah. Electronic Explora- Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. It was later identified as the remains of Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who'd been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Well, that's terrible, but they found found her. Ultimately, the extensive search and recovery operation uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions and to law enforcement agencies around the world. Why would they wait a month to do that? I would think... Maybe they thought they were going to get them. I would think I would, I'd probably want to, you know, get that information out there, like, the next day. Yeah, because if he starts using the money right away, it could change hands several times yeah, like until if, they if uncover it. If I was it. Cooper, I would try to, like, wash that money right away. Yeah. Because he, he, obviously he's, he knows what's going on, so he knows the serial numbers are probably tracked. Yeah, if he was that prepared, yeah, he would know probably what he probably next had steps a plan be. to launder that money very quickly. I feel like back then it was probably a lot easier to do. Probably, not a lot of digital tracing like today. No, it's I mean, so they, hard to launder money they, today. I try it all the time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They, uh, I mean, they took microfilm of each note. So I mean, it's yeah, <laughs> you're basically going to rely on people having a list of serial numbers and hopefully a hopefully human, they check a human being checking you know money as it's coming in yeah which why i don't check my serial numbers yeah. <laughs> although i should because if you get money with like even numbers and stuff like that's worth stuff like people buy like if yeah. you have a 20 dollar bill and the serial number ends in an even number or like they i think it, they say like like numbers like if it ends in like a 100 mm-hmm. even numbers it people will buy that for like tons of money interesting so start checking your serial numbers. <laughs> I probably won't. I won't either. <laughs> See, I even know that information. I still don't. I don't usually even carry cash anymore. I watch guys on TikTok that check pennies. Wow. Because they like know if you look under a microscope and it's printed wrong or whatever, they can sell them and make tons of money. And 
sounds terrible. Yeah, people buy money that's been <laughs> screwed up. Well, I know that, but man, that just sounds boring. Hey, if it, hey. If it makes you happy. Yeah, it's true. Don't crap on those people, Mike. Come on. <laughs> We're going to get a bad review from one of those guys. From now. a penny collector. Like, hey, I count pennies. <laughs> I'm done with your show. <laughs> All right. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of any recovered money to a maximum of $25,000 in early 1972. U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. Two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with the man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. That's funny. Of course that happened. So they they, they released the serial numbers and they printed their they own money. They made fake money with the serial numbers. Yeah. <laughs> For thirty grand, so maybe there was a reason why they didn't really want to publicize the serial numbers. Yeah, they didn't want fakers to just flood flood the economy <laughs> with the fake serial numbers. Yeah. In early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered one thousand dollars to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field. How did office. you say Oregon? Oregon. Okay, good. We had a we had a listener from Oregon. I hope I'm saying it right. They said we've been saying Oregon, wrong. Oregon. We've been saying Oregon, Oregon, and it's more like Oregon, like Oregon. Like, yeah, like I'm an Oregon donor. Oregon, <laughs> not Oregon. Or it's the other way. We're, but, we're butchering it now. Yeah, Oregon. I may have said it wrong the first time, and then when you said that, I thought about it. I, I don't think you said it wrong. Okay. So in Seattle, is it Seattle or Seattle? I think it's. I know. I'm jo- that one. I'm I think jo- it's Seattle. Seattle. <laughs> the post. Intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving of 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. In 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer, Global Indemnity Company, compiled uh, with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airline's $180,000 claim on the ransom money. So they got they got some of their money back. That's that's nice. Yeah, the insurance company fought it, but I know. mean, yeah, they got their money back, but yeah. I'm sure their rates went way up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because, as many of you know, I got into kickboxing and was feeling slow and sluggish on my training days. I was taking more supplements than I could count, and nothing was helping. One of the fighters at my gym recommended Athletic Greens AG1 Daily Health Drink, and I've never felt better. One scoop of AG1 in the morning has me ready to take on Mike Tyson by the time I get to the gym. One serving of AG1 contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that support better sleep quality, recovery, mental clarity, and alertness, all things that are very important in the world of combat fighting. Best of all, it costs less than $3 a day, which from my own experience is cheaper than getting all the different supplements myself. For less than a cup of Starbucks, you can make an investment in your own health that I personally that I can personally vouch for. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash 
E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So Joe basically went through uh, an immediate timeline from the hijacking to a couple years after um, the the hijacking. So now I'm going to go into... Should, th- should we summarize real quick? Like high level, he boarded a plane, asked for $200,000. Yeah. They had four to parachutes. Re- the he, yeah, four parachutes. He had to refuel. He let everybody out except for the basic people to keep the plane flying. Yeah. He knew... Uh, he gave them instructions of how to fly the plane, which would best suit what seems to be a jump out of the plane. Mm-hmm. And then he jumped at some point, and basically they found nothing. They tracked the serial numbers they tr- of the cash they gave him. They looked for the parachutes in the wilderness. They questioned people. They have no leads. Yeah. That's where we're at right now. That's where we're at. So, um, I, like we said, this has been an ongoing investigation for 40-plus years now, and it was just recently closed by the FBI. But uh, subsequent analysis indicated that the original landing zone estimated um, original landing zone estimate was actually inaccurate. Uh, Captain Scott, who was flying the aircraft manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, later determined that uh, the flight path was further east than initially assumed. So... That could be one explanation to why nothing was ever found was because they were completely looking in the wrong spot. Yeah, and that day they're flying by instrumentation. It's not GPS. It's not coordinates that they could just say, oh, we are exactly at this longitude and latitude when the tail section went up. And I don't know when um, GPS started. I'm going to Google it quickly here. Um, I can look it up if you want to keep going. Yeah, look up when GPS navigation started becoming a thing for airline jets. But um, so... Additional data from a variety of sources, in particular Continental Airlines pilot Tom Bohan, who was flying four minutes behind Flight 305, indicated that... Yeah, the first GPS was 1994. Okay. So it was pure instrumentation. Instrumentation, uh, maps, yep. um, you know, flight plan. Yeah. Um, but like like they said, because of the, the strange demands from Cooper about uh, where he wanted to go, how fast he was going with, you know, the, the landing gear out, the flaps at 15 degrees... Um, the pilot probably was under some stress as well because, you know, he thinks there's a guy in his plane with a bomb. Uh, so um, you can imagine that they probably were off course or he didn't remember the course correctly in your initial investigation. Um, so. I imagine they were all gentlemanly. <laughs> like, hey, he's got a bomb in the plane. Yeah. What do we do? <laughs> Just keep him on the flight path there, Charles. Like, <laughs> it's the 70s, that's all, not, that's the, all, not the 20s. <laughs> that's how they all talk back then. Right. Like a um, madman. So, like I said, there was a Continental Airlines flight flown by Tom Bohan that was flying four minutes behind flight through a five. Uh, he indicated that the wind direction factored into drop zone calculations had been wrong, possibly by as much as 80 degrees. This and other data suggested that the actual drop zone was south-southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of the Washington River. Uh, FBI agent Ralph uh, Himmelsbach wrote, I have to confess, if I were going to look for Cooper, I would head for the um, Washig- <laughs> I'm going to butcher this, Washigal uh, Valley and its surroundings have been searched repeatedly by private individuals and groups in subsequent years. Uh, to date, no discoveries traceable to the hijacking have uh, been reported. I'm guessing a lot of p- private citizens have searched for Cooper in 
the you know the coming deck the the previous decades trying to you know find that money. Yeah, um, I'm pulling up for those watching. I'm pulling up just kind of a view between Mount St. Helens, which is where they talked about maybe, and yeah. then uh, is this a Washigal W A A S H O U G A L? Yes. Okay, so that's Washigal River Road. So this is the Washigal Valley area. So that's a big area, but it's very rugged. Yeah, but I mean, assuming he survived the jump. If they're searching in the wrong spot, it's no wonder they didn't find him. Yeah, it's a big area. Yeah. You're flying at 100 miles an hour through a storm, yep. no visual. And like they said, if he pulled his chute right away, he could have drifted yeah. for miles. So, um, so yeah. And, and so finally, some investigators, investigators have uh, speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens could have um, destroyed any other physical evidence. Now that is going off the assumption that they had the right spot in the first place. Yeah, he could have planned that. He was like, "Hey, this thing's going to erupt in a few years. We'll cover up my." Well, escape. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. Nine years later, he like, knows he, how to fly. He's a volcanologist. He's he can predict the future. Yeah, he's an expert at everything. Um, he's a man in black. Yeah. So, uh, law enforcement did actually get a break in this case on February tenth, nineteen eighty, when eight year old Brian Ingram was uh, vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as. Uh, Tina, uh, Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash totaling around $5,800 as he raked the Sandy Riverbank to build a campfire. The bills had been disintegrated from lengthy exposure to the elements but were still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of 100 $20 bills each, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. So I have an image of the, the actual money that they found. You can tell it's pretty tattered and weathered. It's pretty pretty bad. But you, you know what's interesting about U.S. money? Um, it, what's, the, what's the law? If there's more than 50% of the bill intact, you can take it to a bank and they'll give you a, a brand new bill and swap it with you? I think so. I don't know that for sure, but I remember someone telling me that. Yeah, one time. like if it, it's it's got to be significantly more than fifty percent because otherwise people could just you know rip bills in half and That's go true. double it. It's got it's probably got to be like I mean like you, three quarters of it or something. Google Google that, Jamie. I, I, I will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> but it, maybe it's like seventy five or eighty percent. Yeah, I was trying to I was trying to pull up. Here's the Columbia River. Yeah. So that is, and assuming it flows to the ocean, it's flowing this way. Well, it's everything so, on the, the, that side of the continental. Yeah, where, where did it say that he was roughly? Um, he was he was about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. Okay, and so twenty miles southwest of Ariel. So here's Vancouver. Okay, so here's Mount St. Helens. So he's like, but you got to go south. Downstream doesn't have to be south. If it goes to the ocean, it's going to go that way. That's true. Where's Ariel? How do you spell it? Is it? Um, it is A R I E L. I L. Yeah. Washington. He said nine miles south. He said um, it was about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, twenty miles southwest of Ariel. Oh, weird. I'm not, I'm not getting my search here. Well, I'll I'll go on, but yep. Joe's got the general area uh, up on the screen here for anyone who's watching. Yeah, here's the video. Vancouver. So it was, and there's Mount St. Helens. 
here's that valley area. So the reality is if that was downstream, it could have been this area right here. And then it went downstream to where they were. Yeah. So, okay, keep going. Yeah. So, uh, uh, the discovery launched several new rounds of conjecture and ultimately raised more questions than it answered. Initial statements by investigators and scientific consultants were founded on the assumption that the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its many connecting tributaries. As an Army Corp, uh, Corps of Engineer hydrologist noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, indicating that they had been deposited by river action as opposed to having been deliberately buried. Um, that conclusion, if correct, supported the opinion that Cooper had not landed near Lake Merwin or any tributary of the Lewis River, which feeds into the Columbia well downstream from Tinabar. It also lent credence to uh, the supplemental speculation that pl- uh, placed the drop zone near the Washigal River, which merges with the Columbia upstream from the discovery site. So I think it's pretty safe to say that they searched the wrong area yeah. and he didn't land where they thought he did. Yep, and I do have an answer on your uh, thing. So in the United States, you must submit more than half of the paper bill in act. This is in part to prevent people from ripping money in half and replacing both halves. You know, because <laughs> that's, that's fractional reserve banking. That's for banks to do, not us normies. Yeah. <laughs> the only exception to this requirement is if less than 50% of the bill is intact, intact, but there is sufficient supporting evidence, such as burn marks, that the remainder of the bill has been destroyed. Mm. So, so there you go. I knew someone had told me so that. So rip it point. in half, singe the ends, and then go uh, double your money. <laughs> no, do not do that. That would be a crime. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so like I said, we're kind of coming to the conclusion that he jumped in a different spot and theoretically landed outside of the search zone. Uh, the free floating hypothesis presented difficulties though. It did not explain the 10 bills missing from one packet, nor was there a logical reason that, that the three packets would have remained together after separating from the rest of the money. Physical evidence was incompatible with geological, uh, geologic evidence. Um, the FBI agent wrote uh, that the free-floating bundles would have had to wash up on the bank within a couple years of the hijacking. Otherwise, the rubber bands would have long since deteriorated. Uh, geological evidence suggested, however, that the bills arrived at Tinabar well after 1974, the year the Corps of Engineers dr- dredging operation on that stretch of river. So we've got a lot, a lot of things that just don't make sense. Um, geologist Leonard Palmer of Portland State University found two distinct layers of sand and sediment between the clay deposited on the riverbank by the dredge and the sand layer in which the bills were buried, indicating that the bills arrived long after dredging had been completed. So this makes it sound like they were dropped or placed there several years after this hijacking happened. Um, by who we don't know, and that makes sense. I mean, you know, like the stuff rubber bands are made out of is not very durable. I couldn't imagine that surviving out in the wild for an extended period of time. Yeah, I agree. Uh, in late 2020, analysis of the di- uh, diatoms, which is algae, uh, found on the bill suggests that the bundles found at Tinabar were not submerged in the river or buried uh, dry at the time of the hijacking in November 1971. 
Only diatoms uh, that bloom during springtime are found, placing the date range that the money entered the water at least several months after the hijacking. All right, here's a... I found Ariel. So this is roughly where they found the money, 20 miles southwest of Ariel. Okay. And then that's here's Vancouver. So it's right in this area here. So that's pretty darn close to Portland. Yeah, where's where's Portland? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, just north north uh north northwest of Portland. Okay. So uh finally here in 1986 after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. Very interesting. Uh, the Columbia River ransom money remains the only confirmed physical evidence from First the hijacking. Of all, good, good job for that eight-year-old. Kept it that long. Well, no, just got to auction it off and made some money for off of his find. Yeah, but I mean, he uh, he held on to it till 2008. Yeah, well, and it, maybe got more money as yeah. a result. So uh, that was an interesting break they had in the case. Like, like I said, it was the only evidence they really ever found of the hijacking. Uh, next, we've got some FBI disclosures from uh, this case, and they ha- I, we're going to have the full D.B. Cooper uh, FBI report on our Locations Unknown FOIA reading room at some point in the next couple days. It's, uh, I downloaded it, and it's... It's like a thousand pages, so uh, <laughs> it's every little detail. It's four decades of uh, information, essentially, about yeah. the case. Yeah, it's all the agents that got in trouble and annoyed people, and they're like, "That's it, you're on the <laughs> DB Cooper case." <laughs> yeah, so we we have a lot of different information come out from the FBI uh, in the last, I would say, fifteen years on the DB Cooper case. Uh, so. We'll start in late 2007. The FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from samples found on Cooper's tie in 2001. Uh, Though they later acknowledged that there's no evidence that the hijacker was the source of the sample material. So um, they go on to say the tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample, uh, said Special Agent Fred Gutt. It's difficult to draw firm conclusions from these samples. The Bureau also made a public file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 plane ticket, and posts of previously unreleased composite sketches and fact sheets, which Joe has been showing here in the video, along with a request to the general public for information which might lead to Cooper's positive identification. The FBI went on to disclose that Cooper had chosen the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him, rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute and that from uh, the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy, an unusable unit with a sewn-shut chute intended for classroom demonstrations. Although an experienced... That's a, that's a crazy move. They gave him a fake parachute. Right? <laughs> Although an experienced skydiver would have realized this was non-functional, he also used the cord from the functional parachute and jumped with... Uh, he jumped with to secure the money bag. So uh, maybe he wasn't as prepared or knowledgeable as we thought yeah he might have known like the cursory high level knowledge of it but but not enough to be fooled by it it so uh reading that again um he his two primary parachutes he picked one that was inferior Mm -hmm. and the other one was a dummy parachute 
Yeah. So we don't know which one he technically used. If he tried using the dummy one, it slights he out. Like, he like hooked the money up to the real one and then himself up to the dummy one, maybe. And maybe that's why there wasn't a parachute found opened <laughs> on the ground. But uh, interesting. So in March 2009, the FBI disclosed that Tom Kay, a paleontologist from Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, had assembled a team of citizen sleuths, including scientific illustrator Carol Abrazinskas and metallurgist Alan Stone. The group, eventually known as the Cooper Research Team, reinvestigated important components of the case using GPS, satellite imagery, and other technologies unavailable in 1971. So that's that's pretty interesting that you've got a team of academics going back and using modern technology to try to break you know, find a break in this case. Yeah. It just shows you how many people over 40 years tried to find this guy, which makes it even more remarkable that he's never been found. Mm -hmm. Um, So pretty interesting. Uh, Although they gained little new information about the buried ransom money or Cooper's landing zone, they were able to find and analyze hundreds of minute particles on Cooper's tie using an electron uh, microscope. Uh, lycopodium spores, likely from a pharmaceutical product, were identified, as well as fragments of bismuth and aluminum. Uh, in November 2011... Oh, that, that just changes everything. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Bismuth. <laughs> Case is solved. <laughs> um, in November of 2011, Kay announced that particles of pure, unalloyed titanium had also been found on the tie. He explained that titanium, which was much rarer in the 70s than in the 2010s, was at that time found only in metal fabrication or production facilities or at a chemical company uh, using it to store extremely corrosive substances. The findings weakly suggested that Cooper might have worked for a metal or chemical manufacturing plant. So they're kind of starting to put the pieces together a little bit. That's cool that that, uh, they even thought to do that. Yeah. Uh, in January of 2017, Kay reported that rare earth metals such as cerium and uh, strontium sulfide had also been identified among particles from the tie. One of the rare applications for such elements in the 1970s was Boeing's supersonic transport development project, suggesting uh, the possibility that Cooper was a Boeing employee. Um, oh, that would that would indicate how he knew about the planes. Yeah. And that would indicate that he was much more knowledgeable than they may have originally assumed. Yeah, I'm throwing up the, uh, what, oh, what was that called? The Concorde, right? No, that wasn't a Boeing. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, it, but it, was it similar to that idea? Like supersonic flight? I have no clue. Okay. Uh, it was a supersonic <laughs> transport project. So they were probably trying to develop a, a military transport plane that could fly supersonic. Well, there it is. It's uh, declassified, apparently. Does kind of look like the Concorde. It does. That's what. That's why I asked. It looks like the Concorde. Um, interesting. Maybe it was the Concorde. I don't know. All right. Uh, so other possible sources of the material included factories that manufactured cathode ray tubes, which uh, for any of our older listeners are the what powered TVs back in the the olden days, <laughs> um, as, such as uh, the Portland firms of Teledyne and Tektronix. So. Uh, very Teledyne, int- is it the one who did Terminator's arm? And- <laughs> That's Cyberdyne. Cyberdyne, okay. <laughs> I knew it was something Dyne. Um, they made Skynet. 
So uh, the amazing thing about this case is it was left open until July 8th of 2016 when the FBI suspended it. And they basically cited the need to focus their resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. <laughs> I, I, they should have probably done it a lot earlier than 2016. Right. There was just some last guy in a basement somewhere still working the D.B. Cooper case. And they're like, okay, just retire already, Donald. I mean, while it's a very <laughs> fascinating case, I I can't believe they were continuing to use law enforcement resources to the extent that they were. You can't believe it? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> it does seem... I mean, obviously, we want to crack this case, but, I mean, he got 200 k We don't know. He may have had a fake bomb in that briefcase. No one was injured. It was basically everyone, you know, the insurance company paid the money back to the airline. Yeah, so, like, in 42 years, I bet they wasted more than 200 k Absolutely. In resources to solve the crime. I bet they probably spent more than that in the first couple of years based on the the size of the search operations. Yeah. I mean, um, so it was finally canceled, though. Local field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence, though, uh, related specifically to the parachutes or to the ransom money that may emerge in the future. The 66-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation. Um, I've been saying the wrong date. I've said 42 years. I guess I can't count. Um, uh <laughs> That's all right. Is preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and on the FBI website, and now on the location's unknown FOIA reading room. There it is. Three places. <laughs> it's all over. The, the only three. Nope, nope, yeah, nope. No. Just go to our website. It's, it's all over the internet. <laughs> we want the hits. Yeah. Um, so, all of obviously, all the evidence has been open to the public. I will tell you this, though. There's a lot of missing pages, obviously. Government, when they release you know, documents to FOIA requests like to um, give you half the report and then they like to black out half of the information on what they're giving you. Well, you know why that is? I just read an Onion article that said that all <laughs> of these years they realized they were using black Sharpies. Oh, no. To highlight things, a black <laughs> highlighter. So they ruined all their documents because instead of using yellow, they used black. And that's oh, why they all look like that. They just accidentally used black highlighter. It makes so much sense. <laughs> um. And like Joe said in the beginning of this episode, this remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. So uh, pretty interesting. That's why it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, all the hijackings and thefts and air piracy things, is, this is the only case that is unsolved. Yeah. They've so, got, they solved all the other ones. Yeah. Um, kind of just going, you know, to wrap up, a little bit of this before we get into theories, which I am sure Joe has several theories. This was actually Joe's idea to do this episode. Um, very interesting case. Um, but we're going to, you know, a couple of the, the things about this case is, you know, he appeared to be, Cooper appeared to be very familiar with the Seattle area. Mm -hmm. um, people thought he may have been an Air Force veteran. Um, based on testimony that he recognized the city of Tacoma from the air as uh, the jet circled the Puget Sound, and his accurate comment to Mucklow that McCord Air Force Base was approximately 20 minutes' drive from Seattle, a detail most civilians would not know or comment upon unless he did his research. Um, but even then, it's a benign comment, even if you do research. Like, that's 
Like, why say that? Why make yeah. that conversation? Yeah. So, um, you know, agents have also theorized that Cooper took uh, his alias from a popular French-language Belgian comic series featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures. And what a very obscure comic to read. Uh, French-Belgian comic. Yeah. <laughs> a fictional Canadian Air Force pilot. Um uh, one a cover from the series reproduced on the FBI website depicts test pilot Cooper skydiving. Because of Dan Cooper, because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English nor imported into the U.S., they speculated that he encountered them from uh, during tour a tour of duty in Europe. So yeah, that leads credence to that he might be military. Yeah, and it maybe. Uh, Veteran, and then he worked at Boeing. A lot of military people, when they get out of the military, go and work for defense contractors. Yep. Not uncommon. <clears throat> so I think there's a strong strong evidence that he potentially was ex-military, potentially worked for defense contractors. Um, you know, they go on to say that, you know, he had a lot of evidence suggests that Cooper was very knowledgeable about flying techniques, aircraft, and the local terrain. Um. He uh, he chose a 727-100 aircraft because it was ideal uh, for a bailout escape, owing not only to its uh, aft air stair, but also to the high uh, aftward placement of all three engines, which allowed a reasonably safe jump despite the proximity of the engine exhaust. Yeah, here's an, here's an image of that yeah. showing how they get off. So, yeah, you could jump out there and not hit anything or be, yeah. you know, something go with the you know, as you said before, fall into an engine or something. Yeah. Um, they said that, you know, the 727 had a single point fueling capability, a then recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single fuel port. So um, it also had the ability, unusual for a commercial jet airliner, to remain in a slow, low-altitude flight without stalling. Cooper knew how to control its airspeed and altitude without entering the cockpit where he could have been overpowered by the three pilots. In addition, Cooper was familiar with important details such as the appropriate flap setting of 15 degrees, which was unique to that aircraft. So that leads credence to him being a Boeing employee. Yeah. And under or you know, being in the Air Force and knowing enough about planes to understand this stuff. Well, and, the, and as you said, a lot of times the military is working hand-in-hand hand with these companies. So even if he wasn't military, he, if he's working for Boeing, he could be spending time a lot on the base, potentially going overseas to other yeah. Air Force bases, things like that. So I would agree with them and say he's either military, a Boeing employee, because uh, he's around those metals during yep. the manufacturing of the plane. So I would almost lean more towards he is a Boeing employee that works closely with the military. Yeah, and, you know, it's 1971, it's not 2022, so a lot of this information you could probably find today on the internet, just Googling it. Sure. Um, But in 1971, to know, you know, specifics of how a certain airline jet operates, you would probably have to, you know, work for Boeing, work for the airline, or be a pilot to have that kind of specific knowledge. You're not going to be able to just go and find that anywhere. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that Mm because I'm so used to... We have Google. We yeah. have all that we data. We can find to anything we need online. Yeah, and this one, like, you can't do that. So he would have had to do his research, meaning physical research. And my guess is, you know, you weren't finding the brand new Boeing airplanes flight 
measurements and things like that in a library. No. Like you would have to, especially if it's new, you'd have to go there and that's technical stuff that's probably protected to some level. Yeah, I don't know. But I, it wouldn't be as easy as, you know, getting that information now. Uh, you know, along those lines, he knew that the air stair could be lowered during flight, a fact never disclosed to civilian flight, flight crews. Okay, so even like the stewardess didn't know that or no. a lot of the flight crew didn't know that. Um, okay, that, that like puts that nail in the coffin. He's probably a Boeing employee. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it goes on to say, since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make that necessary, and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit. So he knew a lot of these very specific things about this plane that even the crew didn't know. Um, potentially the pilots may not have even known. He also, uh, he also may have known that the CIA was at the time using 727s to drop agents and supplies behind enemy lines during the Vietnam War. There you go. So He's a defense contractor with Boeing. Yeah, so a lot of this keeps adding up to uh, ex-military, current military, defense contractor, at least in my eyes. Um, so assuming that Cooper was not a paratrooper, but was an air force veteran, special agent, Larry Carr, who led the Cooper investigation team from 2006 until, uh, it's disillusion in 2016 suggested the possibility that he was an aircraft cargo loader. Um, such an assignment would have given him knowledge and experience in the aviation field and loaders because they throw cargo out from. Uh, flying aircraft wear emergency parachutes and receive rudimentary jump training. Such training would have given Cooper a working knowledge of parachutes, but not necessarily sufficient knowledge to survive the jump. Okay. Um, so, yeah, very interesting. Um, there's, you know, some other other things. You know, over the years, people have come forward and claimed to have been uh, D.B. Cooper. I'm just going to go through a couple here and then joke and jump into uh, theories. Um, but so one guy uh, by the name of Jack Kaufelt uh, uh, was the first person who claimed to be Cooper in 1972. A con man with long criminal history, Kaufelt uh, was confirmed to have suffered injuries around the time of the hijacking. However, the FBI found so many inconsistencies in his story, they eliminated him. Uh, that didn't stop he stop him from peddling his story to major TV networks who ultimately refused to give him platform. Uh, Kenneth Christensen had been a paratrooper and then a mechanic and a flight attendant for Northwest Orient Airlines. The airline Cooper obviously hijacked. He also resembled the composite sketch of the hijacker. A few months after the hijacking, he supposedly purchased a house with cash. In 2003, his brother Lyle saw a documentary on the Cooper case and became convinced that Kenneth, who died in 1994, was D.B. Cooper. The FBI didn't see enough evidence to investigate Kenneth Christensen, so Lyle tried to shop the story uh, to Nora Ephron for a film, which never happened. It later came out that, unknown to Lyle, Kenneth did not pay cash for the house. So oh. <laughs> the whole story there went up in flames. Yep. Um, and then finally, <laughs> uh, finally, uh, we have a, a female here, Barbara Dayton. Um, this one's kind of interesting. Barbara Dayton underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and changed her name, uh, from, uh, changed her name to Robert. She later explained to friends how she pulled off the hijacking by disguising herself as a man and then escaping scrutiny afterwards as a woman. Dayton died in 2002. Her friends Pat and Ken Foreman published The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes, revealing what Dayton had told them years before. 
The FBI has never taken Dayton seriously as a suspect. Um, Besides those three, there's been dozens of other people to claim to be uh, D.B. Cooper. And for the most part, the FBI, some of the stories are so ludicrous, they don't even talk to them. And others, they investigate, and they basically conclude that, yeah, this... It's people trying to get their 10 minutes... 10 minutes, you know, 15 minutes of 15 fame. minutes, yeah. yeah 10 minutes. They, they wanted five more than the 10. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, Joe, um, why don't you go into kind of official theories from the FBI, and then we can kind of just, I've got some ideas on this. So the FBI was skeptical of Cooper's odds of survival when he jumped out of the plane, concluding that he lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. So... Uh, what they stated was they originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, jumper perhaps even a paratrooper. Uh, they conducted, uh, they concluded, excuse me, after a few years, that's simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in pitch black night in the rain with a 172-mile-an-hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training. It had not been sewn and it had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked. Cooper also failed to bring a re- a, or request a helmet, jumped with a non-functional parachute into the probable 15-degree Fahrenheit wind at 10,000 feet in November over Washington State without proper protection against the extreme wind chill. Uh, if anyone's ever ridden a motorcycle and when it's cold out, you know, doing... 50 miles an hour is pure torture if you don't have anything covering. So, yeah, he didn't have anything covering his face, his hands. He was just in normal clothes, a suit, but normal clothes. Yeah, that's cold. Yeah. The FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive the jump. Diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never got his chute open, said Carr. Even if he did land safely, Agents contended that survival in the mountainous terrain at the onset of winter would have been all but impossible without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. This would have required a precisely timed jump, necessitating in turn cooperation from the flight crew. There's no evidence that Cooper requested or received any such help from the crew, nor that he had any clear idea where he was when he jumped into the stormy overcast darkness. So, that's kind of my theory. It's it's not as exciting, but he wouldn't have been able to see any. Like, he could have potentially parachuted to, like, a city and yeah. not landed in the mountains. But what they're explaining is it was stormy and and rainy and, or snowy at the time. So he wouldn't have been able to see where he was. And we do stories all, all the, the time, time on this of people who are kind of prepared yeah. that go lost or... We know of stories that aren't on our podcast where people have the right equipment and still die in the wilderness because they're not they don't have exactly what they need. This guy was in like loafers, uh, suit, yeah. and had cash, no food, no water, no shelter. Probably soaking wet. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, jumping out of the plane. So yeah, I I mean, obviously our podcast routinely talks about people that do go that go missing in the wilderness with far more gear training. Uh, under better conditions, yeah, and they didn't jump out at ten thousand feet. Um, I think things working against him is yeah, it was fifteen degrees Fahrenheit when he jumped. Um, it was rainy. He's in a suit. He's soaked. Um, he's going to be traveling at the you know the time he jumped, and for however many seconds before he pulls the chute, he's going to be you know traveling at a hundred miles an hour. 
as I said, a 175-mile-hour wind. That's the speed of the plane plus the wind created by the storm. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if there's a way you can look it up, like wind chill, but <laughs> I'm assuming it wouldn't take very long for him to freeze yeah. before even landing. Um, so he's got to, he's, you know, that's working against him. Um, like they said, if for some miracle he lands, now he's got to survive out in the wilderness. Oh, and they had a 15 degree Fahrenheit. Yeah. 175 mile an hour wind speed. Wind chills negative 21 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So you would get frostbite, you know, very pretty quickly. In that situation, I could imagine even if he had the right parachute, after a few seconds, like if your fingers are freezing up, could you even pull the ripcord? Yeah, you're like instantly cold. And now I, I've never skydived; I don't know anything about it. Um, can you even successfully fully open a parachute in icy, stormy conditions? I don't know. I mean, yeah, like what if like the zipper froze? Or what? I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing ideas out here what if the parachute didn't even fully open because it was 15 degrees out it's snowy icy i mean people like you said people don't skydive in conditions like that they skydive in the middle of the day when it's blue skies and sunny yeah not windy with Um, with helmets yeah and the proper clothing i mean i'm sure there's military paratroopers and special forces teams that have jumped in bad conditions but for a guy like this with just a civilian parachute, I did his parachute even open fully. So, and I like I said, I think once he gets to the ground, he's got no navig. He has no clue where he actually is. Mm-hmm. He has. It doesn't sound like he had a map or anything on him. He has. Obviously, they don't have GPS yet. Um, no survival gear. No food. No water. Um, I don't know how if he survived the jump. How he would even survive the night because he's probably soaking wet. Yeah. Um yeah, I think I think I'm with you unless he somehow had a plan and he had someone pick him up and like he was able to steer his parachute once it was open to Well, that's that so here let's go off the deep end. Oh, We're going to go right. off the deep end here. That money that washed up. Yeah. That's only going to happen if that money is near or in the river originally, correct? Yeah. I mean, we can safely assume that. So if you're going on the flight path, and let's see if I'm sharing this. I don't think I'm sharing the screen here. Let me pull that up. So if you're on the flight, like relative flight path, they have like Mount St. Helens here, and they're going this way. Yeah. He would have had to have landed somewhere near this river. Yeah. So that's where, this is where I get thrown off. I don't think he landed in the mountains or deep wilderness. No, maybe he landed near Portland. Yeah, it could have been, you know, and obviously this is bigger now. So yeah. it could have been "quote unquote" wilderness, but he's along a water source. So, did he, you know, smack down near the river, and some of the money went in there? Yeah. But then that should narrow the search area big time. As far as I'm concerned, I would think his body is somewhere along the riverbank. Maybe, yeah, because that money washed downstream. You know, I would like them to do a test of let's put money in there, and or they probably have an idea of how long it would take. You know, they found it at this time. You know, could you reverse engineer that and say, okay, in order to travel that far over this many years with dredging operations or whatever, it would roughly be this many miles upstream. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure they have a way of doing that, but that would put him near a city. 
Yeah. So off the deep end, is it possible he opened a chute? You know, suffered some frostbite, maybe. Maybe he used the chute barely to made keep it warm. Yeah, once barely, he landed. But if he's along the river near a city, he could have potentially hiked out of there. I mean, there are one in a million cases like that. Remember that kid that was a stowaway on a flight from the United States to Hawaii? Oh yeah, and he was like in the wheel well. Yeah, he was in the landing gear with at thirty thousand feet with no oxygen and cold temperatures. He was basically frozen but kept alive because his whole body slowed down. Like he should have died, but he didn't. So is this one of those one in a million where he really should have died? But everything came together because I think that right there, he's not in the mountains. So everywhere north of here, where you'd think like, oh, it's near Mount St. Helens, can't be. Because if the money washed up on shore, and they verified that that was some of the money, yeah, it had to be along this river. So now, what if he jumps, like we said, 175 mile an hour combined winds from the plane moving in the atmosphere? It's cold, windy, rainy. His parachute doesn't open, and he gets disorientated and loses. Disoriented? Disoriented. You always say disorientated. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't talk. <laughs> so he loses the, the briefcase mid-jump. Okay. The briefcase goes shooting off in a different direction. He, you know, crash lands somewhere in the mountains, hasn't been found yet because it's just they, they searched the wrong area, and we don't know the exact area where he, he fell. And the briefcase smashes down somewhere else and pops open. And some of the money somehow, you know, ends up in the river, and maybe someone else found the rest of the money, ah. and it's never been found because they found a way to either they've held onto it and never used it, or they found a way to launder it without the authorities knowing. Well, and again, who's checking serial numbers? If they spent most of it right away, they weren't telling the public to look for it for months. Yeah, and I mean, if you went overseas with it, you could probably use it and. No one would ever know, right, back then. Yeah, so you're off the deep end is maybe in a panic to open the chute, drop the money. Drop the briefcase. Money lost the somewhere. briefcase while he was free-falling. And I'm saying, I'm saying he never got the parachute open because of the conditions. Yeah. Like 21, 20, below 21 degree wind chill is going to, you have, like, think about in winter. You're bundled up and, like, the little piece of your face that's still open to the elements is getting blasted by wind chill, and it's brutal. Yeah, after your hair like starts a, to freeze. After like a minute. Yeah. So like, you know, maybe he just was so confused and, you know, cold, he lost that, and he couldn't get the parachute open, and, you know, he hit the ground, and we just haven't found his remains yet, and the briefcase landed somewhere else, and some of the money, when it crash-landed, ended up in the river, which is how that little boy found it, and then... Either it's never the money was never found and disintegrated, or someone found it and you know laundered it, or has kept on you know kept it. That I don't know. That's kind of my deep end theory. Yeah, my, I agree my, with you. I think he died on the jump. Yeah, my main my you know main you know plausible theory is he survived the jump, but then died in the wilderness. In those conditions, you're freezing, you know, soaking wet in the mountains. No gear, nothing. He's disor. You know, he's it's middle of the night. He doesn't know where he is. He has no map, any way to navigate. He yeah, probably and, died up there. Yeah, and this is not nearly as developed back then as no. It and is now he because the search area was wrong. They were searching the wrong area, probably. 
Um, that's why his remains have never been found, and, and now it's been 45 years. So the chances of them finding something now are probably pretty slim. Um, but, yeah, I don't think he was – I don't think either way, one way or the other, he survived the night. Like, I, would, I would agree with that. He died during the jump or shortly after if he made it. And just like a lot of our cases, they just simply haven't found him yet. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if he if he jumped in one of the sparsely populated remote mountain areas that's not like part of a national forest or national park or any, you know, maybe it's, you know, just federal land, he may never be found a- a- after this long. I yeah. mean, 45 years. I know you probably still find bones this this far in the future, but, I mean... Animals are going to disturb it. The elements, you know, year after year of rain, snow are going to disturb it. My non-scientific opinion is that... Maybe he's in the river. Well, almost that, but he would have had to have, like, even... Here's Portland International Airport. Yeah. Um, I feel like he would have had to even be... If the money was found, because Ariel Washington's right there, and it was roughly, we said the kid found it right here. I feel like he would have had to have landed somewhere here because in this bend, the money would have got caught on the turn. Yeah. So, like, I feel like the search area is this little sliver right here. Well, it would have been maybe they found in the money here. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like right here is where they found the money. Like, I feel like that's right here. But like they said, the so, money might have been deposited well after the hijacking, too, based on their analysis. Like, the rubber bands are still intact and... The sediments on the bills didn't match what would have been on the bills if it had been deposited right after the hijacking. Well, then that really makes you wonder, why did the money move well after the hijacking? Did he have a spotter on the ground who was looking for him? Off the deep end. Here we go. Uh, maybe so he had the, a spotter. The money moved way after the hijacking into the water. Yeah. Maybe it, there was a second party involved that was like a spotter or something that was looking for him in this area. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to see him in the storm, though. No, but, I mean, if they're on if they're on the peak of one of the mountains and they have the right equipment, they could probably... Maybe they were driving a truck along a road and he landed in it <laughs> and just kept driving, but some of the money fell out. I think that the, <laughs> I think he lost the briefcase mid-flight, and it, it, it landed, you know, like a, a briefcase, you know, it could probably travel quite a, quite a distance... On its own. Yeah. Well, no, it was a knapsack. The briefcase had the bomb. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a knapsack. So that, I mean, it could have been. And in $20 bills, $200,000, that'd be pretty heavy. Yeah. So I think the wind could still take it. Yeah. But not super far. It need a 50% chance that he opened the wrong chute. <laughs> yeah. Do we know that he didn't try to put on the, the dummy parachute? And that's why we never found the parachute or. But then you know what happened to the the briefcase would survive forty five years because he had that the knapsack or the briefcase the, yeah yeah the bomb the, the fake bomb the, or the whatever attaché the attaché and then uh, I don't know the parachutes I, I, like a, a dummy parachute should survive the elements yeah I think it'd be like tattered but recoverable yeah hmm. so I don't know I I think he died if I'm being real I think he's he dead. died yeah he I, if. I think my official theory that I'm saying is, like you said, shoot didn't open, slammed in the ground, 
Yeah. Maybe he was with the money. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe it was separated by hundreds of yards. But the mo- at least the money landed near the river. Yeah. I said, I think after the bend upstream. Real deep end. Maybe the whole flight crew was in on it. And one of them is actually D.B. Cooper. Ooh. <laughs> and they split the money. And the description they gave of him was not a description of anyone that was alive. It was a fake description. Yeah. It's a very generic description. Yeah, and then everyone on the flight crew just split the money up. That could be a good movie. <laughs> that's real deep end. Yeah, I like it. Super deep end. Well, I, I like that. That that's my favorite deep end theory. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Very interesting case. I I did not know the case in this detail. Yeah, I knew basics about it, but I didn't know. All I the knew details, he hijacked so. a plane and got some money and then disappeared. Yep, absolutely. So cool. Well, Thanks again for tuning into our show. We appreciate all of you for listening and sharing Locations Unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, We also have the YouTube channel that you can now subscribe to our show as well as look at other video content. If you would like to support our show monetarily, you can visit our Facebook store and buy some cool swag. Otherwise, you can donate on our Patreon account or, again, subscribe at YouTube for paid content. This will give you our normal shows plus our extra shows that we do just for paid subscribers. And remember when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or jumping out of an airplane, (laughs) always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time.